Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. Com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have another founder, another founder. You know, he's uh, raised an unbelievable seed round, a big, big, big Series A tool. So he goes from one big round to another. But we're going to be talking about uh, basically, you know, building, scaling, financing, and all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Adam Nathan. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So you're one of a kind, one of a kind, Adam, because you don't get to meet, you know, a lot of people that are born, you know, and raised in New York City. You know, New York City is kind of like a big United Nations. So you are definitely one of a kind. So you have to walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in New York City? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I uh, I guess I'm a stereotype of a New Yorker in that uh, my parents are also from New York. Uh, we are Jewish. Um, you know, in, in my mind, there's a classic New York New Yorker cartoon of like basically everything past the Hudson River being oblivion. And in the same way, I think growing up in New York was the center of, of my universe. Um, but it's a pretty great place to um, to grow up as a kid because there's so much culture, so much diversity. Uh, so much stimulation. Um, I think it led my ambition to run wild. And my parents are entrepreneurs themselves. They run a small business and I think taught me and my brother the values of hard work and persistence and, you know, really putting in, uh, putting your all into the things that you dedicate yourself to. I think the idea of responsibility and giving back and making the world uh, a bit more just, a bit more right were, uh, were values that I, I've taken with me into my adulthood. And what was that uh, that experience of seeing your own parents going through the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey? How how was that for you? Well, I didn't really think much about it at the time, but seeing that both my brother and I have started our own companies that I think have been quite successful in, in different ways means that there was something in the water for us growing up with my parents. You know, I, I remember my mom sitting on her bed late at night with just paper sprawled out around her and she would always eat like M&Ms and candy while watching TV and doing the accounting uh, paperwork for my the, the business that she and my dad ran. And I think the idea of um, the kind of self-sufficiency and self-reliance you get when you own your own 
uh, when you're on your own destiny was something that has always been really attracted, attracted to me. Um, you know, I, I went to, to college and another big idea for me has always been around social justice and making the world more, uh, more the kind of place that we all want it to be. And I think for me, combining that idealism that was, I think, just in my DNA that I got taught uh, in school and in, in Temple, along with this idea of um, owning your own future <laughs> made me like a natural entrepreneur. And I, I think it's the perfect career for me. I, uh, I think if I had done anything else for, for too long, it would have been a career limiting move to some degree. Um, I, I, when people always ask me, like, should, should I start a business or should they start a business? I always say no unless there's nothing else you can do uh, or uh, an idea that keeps you awake, you know, five to 10 hours a night. And I think um, starting a company, founding something is something you do only when there's, when nothing else is possible. And I think seeing uh, my parents work so hard uh, and, and succeed and thrive because of their efforts was, helped me identify that it was probably the right path for me too. And what about, what about, skiing how do you get into skiing yeah my uh my dad was a big skier and grew up basically spending most uh a lot of weeks during the winter skiing um you know I, i'm someone i love moving fast <laughs> and racing is something where you have to essentially you know check, hit all the hit all the poles check all the boxes going as fast as you possibly can it involves a high amount of risk uh along with a lot of precision and balance and so um, you know, I, I feel like I pulled a lot of those elements actually into my day-to-day -day life now, even when I'm not, uh, racing all the time, but, um, I don't know what came first, my love for uh, starting things or my love for skiing, but I think it's the same preferences, my same innate, innate preferences that drive both my passions. And very competitively. So, so how competitive are we, are we talking about, you know, you took skiing? Yeah. Um, well, I was on the junior national ski team for eight years. Uh, I eventually uh, left to go to college instead. Um, but uh, I, I spent most of my high school days skiing. Why not going professional? Why not going to the Olympics or stuff like that that maybe you had dreamed of, you know, during those eight years that you were there? Yeah, uh, skiing's an individual sport. Uh, and it's, you know, when you ski, you're competing not uh, only against people from other teams, but even your own teammates. and you're really only as good as your last race. A couple of seconds uh, in your results can change where you stand on the team and, and your spot and your qualifications. And I say, so it's, it's, it's intensely competitive all the time. <laughs> and I think I just got burned out by that. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about running a company now is that it's, um, while, while the founder journey can be very lonely, um, it, at its best, it is a team sport. And uh, it's about to succeed, it really does take lots of people of different talents working together. And, uh, and I think just kind of being, uh, that, that, that competitive for that long didn't, uh, stop being fun at some point. And, you know, I, I still ski a lot now and I've, uh, kind of re redefined my relationship to the sport. Uh, I'm still very competitive with myself when I ski and I, I think still ski really fast, but it's more about being in the moment, um, uh, enjoying uh, the sunlight and the snow and the world around me and skiing with friends than it is about trying to win something. And yeah, I prefer, <laughs> I prefer my life with skiing now than, than before. So I guess when it came to, uh, competitiveness, how do you think about that when it comes now to your life, when it comes that to, 
business? How does that, you know, translate into things? Uh, I'm still intensely competitive uh, and uh, I hold myself to very high standards. I hold our team to high standards. I think one of the reasons people come to work at Almanac is because they want to take a big swing and push themselves harder than they would anywhere else. And so I think it's actually part of our value proposition to our to our team members, uh, the the standards that we hold each other to, the, the, the competitive drive that fuels our efforts. Uh, but at the same time, I think I've also learned how important intrinsic rewards are, uh, you know, internal learning and growth, getting better on your own, developing mastery over things, um, doing things because you think they're right and they're important to you over just things that are important, uh, you know, externally to the market. And I think, um, you know, both, both my internal value system um, fuels my work. It's almost disconnected from anything that's happening externally with the business, along with, I think, a strong desire to achieve and make an impact. Uh, and change the world. And I, so, you know, I, I still draw on a lot of that competitiveness, but I think, you know, competitiveness on its own can be very empty. And you see, you hear stories all the time about people who set some kind of goal and even when they achieve it, um, you know, it doesn't hold any of the, there's, there's none of the satisfaction they thought that they would get uh, when they got there. And that's because I think having a reason to do something that's important to you outside of anything else the world is saying is, is also critical for the, level of energy and the amount of persistence it takes to start and grow a, a business into something really big. Now, in your case, you went to Duke and then, you know, obviously after the, the skiing, you know, like didn't, didn't pan out the way that, uh, that you had hoped for, or, you know, perhaps, you know, you got burned out as you said, but you went to Duke, you did your studies, you got excited about social justice, and then all of a sudden you find yourself at the White House. So especially, you know, working there with, with President Obama at the time. What, what did you get out of leadership? What, was, what, was, what, what, what kind of definition did leadership, you know, like get, you know, for you, you know, during that time? How was that experience for you? Yeah, well, just to set some context, uh, you know, I, um, I remember getting a call uh, maybe during the last couple of weeks of my uh, senior year at Duke uh, and I think it was from an unlisted number and it turned out to be the White House. And they asked me if I wanted to come first join as an intern. And this was in uh, 2010. So it was about a year into the Obama administration or, or actually more like six, six months um, since inauguration. And so this was the time that President Obama was trying to pass um, health care reform. He was trying to pass what became uh, Dodd-Frank, the financial regulatory reform bill. Um, the, the, the recession was still... Uh, very much a topic around how do we get out of it. And so I think President Obama came into office with, you know, more challenges than really any modern president since maybe FDR. And uh, <laughs> I was asked to, to come to come work at the White House. And I was 21 and had never had a full-time job before. And one of the interesting things about the White House is um, a lot of the people who are, you know, doing the work are all the principals, like uh, advisors to the president. And the people who are managing the work are all uh, were people like me, uh, you know, young people with a lot of time on their hands. So it's almost like a reverse pyramid. Whereas in most companies, you know, the people who are managing at the top at the White House, people who are managing and supporting are, uh, are at the bottom. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was an amazing first job because uh, it really set my expectations for what work could be, what, what making an impact could be. Uh, you know, at a lot of jobs you go in and they limit what you can do at first. And, you know, 
like someone has to read your emails before you send them and you can't speak up in meetings. And there I was at the White House interfacing with CEOs of major banks <laughs> and people who ran, you know, huge advocacy organizations as a 20 run year old. And, uh, you know, even small things when you work at that level of government carry a lot of impact. Like, and I was in charge of like inviting people to meetings with the president and, and helping them manage um, our work around uh, the economy. And so I think it, um, you know, it showed me what kind of impact I could have, we could have when, um, when you really give your all to something, everyone there worked incredibly hard. And, and like today, you know, spending an hour more on your work actually did lead to more impact. And I think it's, some people think, oh, well, doesn't work, hard work doesn't really matter. Um, giving something my all doesn't really matter, because it won't lead to some kind of result. And I think I learned early on at the White House that um, working hard does make a difference, uh, not just for me and my career, but for for other people, for even the the state of the world. And I was young, and I, I I probably didn't have like you know that I was just one of many people working really hard there. But I think um, you know working in a place where I could have so much impact at a young age set the bar really high for me. <laughs> uh, and I think nothing's really come to rival it uh, except starting something on my own and, and really being someone who can really be in a place where I can drive my own my own destiny. So obviously after this, you did some consulting and then you did your MBA at Harvard. Yep. I'm wondering, like, you did your MBA at Harvard and it sounds like, you know, that's like the perfect, you know, shift or uh, uh, gear shift, you know, to, towards starting your own company, especially if you had, you know, your parents, you know, as entrepreneurs. Why didn't you start your company out of Harvard? You know, because obviously after Harvard, you know, you went to a few other companies like Lyft and Envaro Money and Crosby, you know, for a few a few more years before you started Almanac. So what were you waiting for? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And just just for some context, I was always interested in complex systems. I, I designed my own major when I was at Duke as an undergrad, and it was around leadership and systems change and developing economies. I was really interested in how you know, one individual or a small group can actually change the world, um, especially in environments that are ambiguous or fast moving. And uh, the, the couple of things I did before going to business school, like working in the federal government, working with large nonprofits, working at an airline, were really like practical exercises. And how can how can one person <laughs> work in a really messed up, complex uh, space and, and actually make things better? And, you know, airlines and nonprofits and, and governments are all examples, I think, of uh, relatively dysfunctional uh, markets and and often companies and I was just fascinated by how organizations work or or don't work uh, and so when I went to business school I was still really interested in this topic of uh, like organizational behavior essentially and I did consider uh, after business school starting my own company um, but I you know I had never worked in tech and it, it was clear to me that. If you want to change the world, make an impact, the best way to do it is to uh, to work in technology and work on the Internet. You know, software is eating the world, uh, has been for some time now. And if you want to be part of changing things, improving things for the better, I, I started to think the best way in was to um, to learn how to build and sell and service technology. And so I had had no experience in tech before. And so working, I interned at Apple um, and then I worked at Lyft where I ran pricing. And I just wanted to get some experience and understand functionally, like, how do you build software? How do you run a SaaS business? Um, you know, even at HBS, there was a, a focus on tech, but, uh, you know, HBS 
I don't think really knew at the time how to teach tech. It's not like they had people whose founders who had started big tech companies really um, there as professors. It almost felt like the blind leading the blind on a lot of the tech classes. You know, really, I think to learn how to be a product manager or a marketer or an engineer, you have to go to the source of the knowledge, the practical knowledge, which is, is here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with dot tech domains. So dot tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash DealMakers. So go get your own domain. So this episode is brought to you by SaneBox. So are you tired of sorting through junk email in your inbox so that you can find the emails that you really need? SaneBox does the sorting for you, saving the average user more than two hours a week on email management. Using its proprietary AI, SaneBox organizes your incoming emails into appropriate folders so that when you open your inbox, you'll only see the most important emails. You don't have to lift a finger, nothing to install either. SaneBox works with any email client. SaneBox saves you tons of time. It also is all about helping you stress less on email and SaneBox works on how you work. Basically, they don't force you on doing changes. They make it easier to focus on the important things. And they also have you as a trial user there for free. You know, and in essence, you know, then you would convert into a paying client. But the beauty here is that you will get a promo code if you were to go to sanebox.com forward slash dealmakers. And that is spelled as S-A-N-E-B-O-X and then dot com. So then 2019, what, what felt different, you know, at this point? Because, you know, you gave your notice at Crosby. And then you get going with Almanac. So what felt different? What 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 was that uh, switch or that light bulb that uh, you were waiting for? Yeah, well, for me, it was kind of this idea that I, I couldn't get out of my mind. And as I mentioned, you know, I, I have a my brain works in, in a systems thinking kind of way. And I have always been someone to quickly analyze how how people, how processes, how structures are working together or not. And, you know, when I um when I worked at Lyft and at Faro, I worked as a product manager and the job I thought I was hired to do was to help build products. Uh, but when I actually got into those organizations, what I actually spent my day doing was sitting in back-to-back -back meetings, constantly trying to stay on top of Slack and emails, um, 
following up with people to see if they even read the proposal I sent or what they thought about it, you know, work that I considered not to be work, just like overhead tasks. And it often felt like even trying to get simple things done, like getting approval on documents would take my entire week as like pushing a, a ball through mud. I, you know, it wasn't the job I thought I was hired to do, it wasn't the job I woke up in the morning to do. Um, and I had this contrast with the engineers I worked with who were using a tool called GitHub, which basically allows for engineers to collaborate on code, um, even when they're, they're not together. And these engineers who are on my teams were a lot more productive than me and actually getting stuff done and seemingly happier. And so, you know, I was at Lyft and I, at first I thought, well, you know, maybe it's one organization. And so when I went to work at other places, I started to see that this, this feeling of like dysfunction and like the um, work feeling, doing work, spending your days doing work that, that wasn't work, wasn't something that was endemic just to one company or even one industry. It was something that was happening across all types of companies. And, and even in like, the what should be the fastest companies in the world, like native tech companies. And so I started thinking about this idea of um, that some people, these engineers I, were working, I was working with were living in the future and the rest of us were like stuck <laughs> in the past uh, using processes and, and tools that were designed for, for work from the 1950s. And at the time, I didn't really know much about like what the secret was behind how developers collaborated, but I started thinking that there was, there was some opportunity there. And so it was for me less, uh, it was more that I was starting to get obsessed with this idea um, of what if uh, knowledge work could all be like um, how engineers work together. Uh, that made me want to quit my job and, <laughs> and launch myself into a venture. So what happened next? This was 2019, uh, maybe January 2019. And I was thinking about this idea and I um, you know, had met uh, someone who became uh, my co-founder who ran our engineering team through a small consulting project I was doing. And uh, this company that this other company we're working for wanted to hire both him and me to be full time. And I remember saying to him, you know, I, I have this other idea. And, you know, would you be interested in maybe trying it with me? And we can give uh, this consulting opportunity like a couple weeks to see if that takes off. And we can also, you know, spend half our time on what became Almanac. Um, and we'll see what kind of horse race these ideas and see which one took off. And I remember almost instantly when we started working on Almanac, uh, we got traction. We, you know, people, customers were interested in paying for our product. Investors were interested in uh, giving us money. And it just, it, it felt like this like massive pull. Uh, you know, I think within like a week or so, we had to tell this client that we wouldn't be able to work with him because um, Almanac just started, it, it got that immediate traction so quickly. And that was January, 2019. Uh, and, you know, from there, it was clear that uh, we had a real, <laughs> a real idea, a real business on our hands. And we started thinking about, you know, this, maybe this, maybe we should start raising money um, to help us hire a team of develop, a small team of developers so that we can actually build a better product than the essentially prototype we had. And for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Almanac? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So at the time, uh, we built what was called the first version of the product we called the Almanac Core, and it was essentially an open source repository of best practices. And so very similar to Stack Overflow. Um, and the developer side, essentially, it was user contributed content that was free um, that uh, helps people understand how to do best practices in tech. You know, there are all these spaces like product management and product marketing, DevOps that really didn't have codified best practices yet, but were kind of the, the, the fastest growing um, technical roles anywhere around. And so 
at first we were thinking, okay, like let's help people never start from scratch so, and find a template that they could copy and customize in their organization that was you know, really um, created and validated by experts. And what we, the feedback we got, that, that worked really well, actually. <laughs> but people started asking us, hey, we don't just want the template. We actually want um, like better rails for collaborating on that work, uh, for approving that work, for sharing it. Uh, what, what people started saying to us was, we don't want Stack Overflow, we want GitHub. And, and GitHub is uh, kind of the core operating system for how developers collaborate on code. Um, and so what we started building after we built this templates gallery was a document editor that had um, a bunch of workflows for getting structured approvals on documents, um, for putting them in handbooks that then automatically updated over time so that essentially you could create and collaborate and share information without needing to meet. Uh, and this was in 2019. Um, and, you know, we, we looked at GitHub often and say like, oh, well, what are the kind of killer features of GitHub? And in GitHub, there are these things called pull requests, which essentially allow you to ask for feedback or approval. What we didn't realize was what makes GitHub really powerful is that these pull requests, these structured approvals, enable engineers to work across time and space without needing to meet. They enable engineers to work on distributed teams. And engineers have been working in remote contexts, you know, for 20 years before the rest of us did. Uh, and as we started building our product in 2020, uh, COVID happened. And what we realized is we, we weren't just building um, like GitHub for documents. We were building uh, a platform for structured collaboration that could power remote teams. And then all of a sudden, uh, it wasn't just a small group of early adopters that needed our product. Everybody needed something that would help them work faster without meetings. So, so obviously, you know, in this case, you guys raised some money. How much money have you guys raised to date? I think over $50 million. Now, 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 very interesting the way that you guys have gone about it because always making big, big splashes, you know, on each one of those rounds, you know, seat round. How, how much was the seat round? It was $9 million. And then the Series A, how much was the Series A? It was $40 million. I mean, it's a, some really big rounds. So, yeah. so why, why so much money in, in, in those rounds? And, and how did you guys go about really putting that together because i mean it's it's not easy to raise those those big rounds yeah and so our seed round we raised in 2019 and i remember as i said we we got immediate traction for the first version of our product i remember uh talking to my co-founders saying like should we raise money or should we just try and bootstrap this we all agreed that raising some amount of money would help us hire some developers and accelerate our progress but we didn't want to over raise and i remember talking to one of our advisors just trying to figure out the right amount and the right valuation. And his strong advice was just go out and raise, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at a, um, at a modest valuation. Don't overraise, don't over optimize for fundraising, because that's not the point of starting a company. The point is to, you know, build a product people love and then grow the hell out of it. <laughs> and so, you know, initially fundraising, it was, it was not, a, it has never really been a focus of ours, but I think we initially targeted like $300,000. I thought it would take us three to six months to raise. I think we raised it in like three days. Um, and then, you know, with a lot of great fundraising processes, there's, I think, often a, a snowball effect where I like to compare it to um, like thermodynamics where often there's a difference between, um, you know, a, a fire in a room and a room on fire. <laughs> uh, and firefighters actually talk about this inflection point where when you like basically the whole, um, the way like air and, and heat work in a room changes when the fire starts to just overpower things. Uh, it starts to just consume more and more and more oxygen. And 
you know, that's why often you see like oxygen getting sucked into rooms when there's a really powerful fire inside. Uh, you know, I, I think we were able to leverage the effects of FOMO with investors where um, our round became a hot round. People started to hear about it. Uh, investors who had committed started making more and more referrals. And so there was this almost compounding that happened where we got increasingly more and more intros <laughs> every single week that the fundraisers opened. And so, and I think this is this is a dynamic in, in many successful fundraising rounds where, uh, you know, for us, it happened pretty quickly, but sometimes you can go weeks or months with minimal traction. Then, and then all of a sudden, as soon as you get an investor or a series of investors who are willing to really back the deal, like things can take off quickly. And, and in our case, that happened really immediately. And I think, you know, uh, I think we, we structured the round really well. That's the advice I always give to founders is, you know, pay attention to how you set up your round and how you manage it, because that's just as important as the idea you're pitching. Uh, but even the idea itself of like building a you know core productivity offering that's designed for the internet and for the internet age, uh, it was a big idea. Two and a half of the top five most valuable companies in the world are productivity companies, so huge, huge market. Um, and and you know to your to your question on how much we had to raise, uh, it often takes a while to build companies like this. Uh, companies like Notion and Airtable and Figma, all, all amazing successes now took about eight to nine years to actually reach their inflection point. And so I knew that if we wanted to really build something like GitHub that isn't just a product people use a couple times a week, but is a product people spend their entire days in, you know, it would, it would take years of investment. And obviously when it comes to um, getting investors, you got to share with them a compelling future, a compelling story, you know? Yep. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Adam, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Almanac is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's a great question. I think it's a world where we get to spend our days doing work that only we can do. Yeah, so much of our days are spent on, excuse my French, but bullshit. <laughs> uh, you know, doing tasks, uh, sitting in meetings, consuming and sharing information that all could be automated. And, you know, even in this age of AI, um, so much of collaboration, how we work together is deeply human. Uh, even, you know, the AI tools that, that we're building in Almanac and that other companies have built, they all access data about what has happened in the past, but nobody can predict what's going to happen when humans sit down together to solve a problem. Um, and, you know, e even, even on basic types of collaboration, like getting your feedback or getting your approval or sharing out knowledge, um, they're, they're extremely manual and extremely time consuming. You know, we, um, did a survey recently where we asked uh, thousands of white collar professionals how much of their time they spend sitting in meetings, responding to messages and, and looking for files. McKinsey asked the same question 10 years ago. And the answer then was 68%, which is already pretty high. Uh, today in 2023, on average, white collar professionals spend 95% of their working hours just on those basic three activities, meaning they have no time to do their actual jobs. And, and I don't think those hours are fun hours. They're not fulfilling hours. <laughs> it's not the kind of work that, uh, you know, calls to our, our highest abilities. And, you know, I, I want to live in a world where I wake up excited to do my job every morning, where uh, my creativity is, is leveraged and I get to work with people I trust and respect, not sitting around in back-to-back -back Zoom calls. And I think if we lived in that world, not just would people be more fulfilled, but um, 
our innovation and our productivity would go up. Um, we would solve bigger and more complex problems together. Uh, you know, I think anything's possible when we put our minds to it. It's it's amazing to go back and look at headlines from the 60s and the 70s about things that we thought would end civilization that we basically just solved through like technology and engineering and innovation. And I think a lot of the problems that we face today are, are solvable problems so long as we don't get mired <laughs> in the muck of all this overhead work. Uh, and I think it's, our, it's really about the systems that we use and the tools that enable them that will either allow us to you know, solve the, the biggest opportunities and challenges before us or, or get bogged down by them. Now, we, we were talking about the future, so let's talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I take you back in time, you know, maybe to that point where you were wondering, you know, what you were going to do, you know, at Crosby, you know, you, you, you got the idea now, you wanted to do something of your own. It was, it was time. Let's say you had the opportunity of going back in time and, and giving that younger Adam one piece of advice for launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think to your earlier question, I would have told myself to to do it sooner. Um, you know, I don't think that entrepreneurship is for everybody. I think it's often portrayed as a, uh, you know, really sexy role that's full of like fame and glory and riches when the reality is that uh, it's um, an extreme exercise and persistence and grit. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty and self-doubt and pain involved. And, you know, I think life is pain and work is pain. And there's often that the choice really is what kind of pain we, we want to take every day. You know, it's painful to be a middle manager in a big organization where it takes a lot of work to get your ideas heard and politics to get stuff done in the same way that it's painful to be a founder toiling in agnomy, hoping that your idea gets to product market fit and scale. Um, so I think really the choices that we all face every day is what kind of pain do we, do we prefer? And, you know, I, I, I think, uh, I, I wish I had recognized even earlier on that for me, um, you know, I'm built to be a founder. <laughs> it's the right job for me. Maybe it's the only job for me. I think a lot of founders uh, and startup CEOs come to the same conclusion. And, and I wish um, in some ways that I had started sooner. Uh, you know, I, I don't regret spending the time I did working in amazing organizations, building my networks, um, probably gaining skills and experiences that helped have helped me avoid mistakes <laughs> later on, you know, mistakes that I might, I might have made if I had started as a company right out of school or something like that. Uh, so I, I don't regret at all the path I took. Um, and if anything, I think it's, it helped me identify this opportunity that was the seed of the idea in Almanac that's helped it be such a success. Um, you know, I may not have figured that out because without the experience I had in the working world, but you know, if anything, I, I, if I could tell myself something, knowing what I know now, it would be to um, to put off the fear, know that no matter what I do is going to be hard and just jump in sooner. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Adam, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, I think my DMs are open on Twitter. I'm at, I think, Adam P. Nathan. And uh, come check us out at almanac.io. Um, and we'd love to see what you do with our product. Amazing. Well, hey, Adam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.